Hey, thank you so much for joining with us wherever you are and whomever you are with. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather with you in this way. I uh, just want to remind all of you as we move towards our first, first Sunday of the year, Sunday, February 7th, we're going to be gathering at the church address uh, for corporate worship. We're looking forward to that. Up until that point and thereafter as well, we want to continue to encourage everyone to find and form a community group. Wonderful stories, testimonies of vibrant community, personal transformation happening. Uh, I understand that it's awkward. I know that it's different, certainly not familiar, very different from any worship experience and we probably have all experienced over our lifetimes. But we're finding this innovation to our uh, scriptural root of small groups, community groups, to be extremely healthy. And so we would again encourage everyone to find and form a community group. Uh, today's conversation uh, is a departure. It's a departure from our current series, we here at Life Church, we pray, uh, we plan, uh, we prepare a preaching series and prefer to fold in current circumstances as they unfold into what we feel God's Holy Spirit has led us into and our efforts have prepared us for. Uh, occasionally, we need a departure. Recently in past years, I've taken to baking bread. Uh, I take Sabbath days and certain moments that I have. It's something that I can do that uh, the whole family enjoys, but it is something that I can't do quickly. It's really a practice of my soul. Bread doesn't come quickly, and so uh, it's been a slow practice that I've kind of worked into my life and into my rhythm. Recently, I've begun uh, baking bagels, and some of the favorite bagels that my kids love are these jalapeno cheddar cheese bagels. And what you do is you take the bread dough and you, you, you fold in the cheese and, and you fold in the jalapenos. And sometimes I end up not being able to actually fold over the dough because I've put too much in. I put too much of the cheese, too much of the jalapenos, too much of whatever. And, and lo and behold, that bagel kind of becomes a small loaf of bread. This is one of those times. There's just too much going on for us to conveniently fold into our circumstance. It's simply too, full, too big to fold in, too much in and of itself. And so I feel the need to depart. I hope to return next week to our current series uh, with Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, a story about storing. Uh, but I make no promise in this, our unknown world with all of its unpacking, unfamiliar and unheard of. Uh, this conversation today is not only instigated by the events of the last 10 days, but also by the framework provided by previous years and, and decades where polarization and siloing uh, has become commonplace, that the nature of humanity now, that we only all get our news from one source. We only listen to one voice. We continue to be separate and just point fingers at others. It comes from a framework where I feel like the church has been co-opted. And when I say church, I don't mean necessarily life church. I don't mean necessarily you or I, but the church universal has been co-opted more than ever to bring in a voting block rather than what beauty it offers in its essence. And in this framework where more people, myself very much included, find themselves in a position of constant stress. I don't mean stressed out because our schedules are full. I mean stress in terms of we're looking over our shoulder. We're wondering what is coming our way. We are in almost fight or flight mode consistently and too often. 
the title of our conversation this morning is simply All the Things. I wish I had a more poetic heading, but as I consider the years that have come before us, coupled with the days that are ahead of us, uh, days that honestly should be celebratory as we remember Dr. Martin Luther King and all that he did to advance the human cause. And what is normal here, but miraculous in, in so many places abroad, the, the, transition, the, the, the transition of our government to a next president, all the things is the only appropriate caption that seems able to contain the width and depth of my talking points today. And per those points, I apologize if they seem disjointed. To me, they make sense. To me, they're greatly intertwined. But since an ordinary rhythm may be lacking, I want to give a few guideposts that may help to serve you just for no other reason except for you to know how much longer is Christoph going to go. So those guideposts, I'm going to talk about a better gospel. I'm going to talk about the church's awkward and at times illicit relationship with power. I'm going to talk about systemic racism being too shallow. I'm going to talk about unsettled is where we really want to be. And I'm going to talk about how Jesus riding in the dirt will make us all go and sin less. I don't have a typical Hallmark passage as we are, again, departing from our current, current series, but I want to read a few words of Jesus that, for me, set a stage from which we should all survey our world and circumstance. Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and this is coming on the heels of Jesus hearing people grumbling, griping about his inclusion of a certain facet of humanity in his life. Upon the grumbling, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, those who miss the mark. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please, please speak to me and through me. Listen through each of us that we may hear your word and respond according to your will. Mold us, shape us, Make us more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. It may be too late, but I would ask that you not cut me short. Maybe some things I've already said have caused others to turn this off. I hope that's not true. I ask that you hear me out. And as we work through this together, if you would have further questions or, or further concerns, feel free to reach out to us, to me, info at lifechurchvirginia.com. I'll be in touch with you. I'm more than willing to engage and have the conversation. Keep us all at the table, so to speak. So the better gospel. Let me just say this. The gospel is not good news unless it makes room for everyone. Everyone. Not some or, or them or, or us. Not just those like me or similar to me or who agree with me, everyone. Additionally, the gospel is not good news if it begins with the badness of Genesis 3. Too often, we look at Genesis 3 as this hallmark moment where God comes in contact with fallen man, original sin, where the mistake has been made. But I would suggest that the gospel is better than our mistakes Made. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, we see that it is God who endeavors to breathe life into us, breathe life into you, breathe life into me. Every time we take a breath, 
It is by the grace of a God who loves us, who has created us, has dreams for us, and desires for us to flourish. That is the gospel. Not that we sin and we miss it and we've made a mistake. Remember, too, the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20 and Jesus' subsequent exposition of such, his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. These things are now rules and mantras to keep us from being our bad selves, but rather to give us ways and means so that we would move from bondage, that which our earthly existence offers us, to the freedom God has intended for us to teach us how to not just treat each other as commodities, what we can get from each other, but to remind us that we are to live in community, to be for, to be with. Supplied with such a better gospel, we see Jesus engaging the religious establishment having conversations with Pharisees and Sadducees, scholars and and lawyers and rulers of the day. We see Jesus inviting those on the fringe, those in tax collectors' booths, those who were the JV team, the, the fishermen, those who were left out. And we see Jesus going to the broken. And rest assured, our difficulty here in 2020 and 2021, our difficulty in dealing with Jesus is awesome, and very divergent ways is nothing new. We see this in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 52. After Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to give myself up. He tells them this for a third time. And even in the midst of that conversation, James and John, the sons of thunder, come to Jesus and say, hey, we want you to do a favor for us. Here's the wisdom of Jesus. He doesn't just say yes. I think we can all take a lesson in that when someone's like, hey, do me a solid. Let's ask what the solid is. Come on, somebody. Uh, But they say, we want you to do a favor for us. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They want the greatest seats. They want to have more power. They want to have authority. They are walking with God in the flesh. He who is love, who time and again serves and gives of himself. He just said, I'm going to completely give of myself. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's great, Jesus. Can we have power? Can we be right? Can we have authority? Just a few moments later, all the disciples are walking around Jericho and a blind Bartimaeus calls out to him. And these disciples who have been walking with Jesus in his servant attitude, try and quiet the blind man. They say, don't bother the teacher. Don't don't mess with him right now. And Jesus says, hey, who is that? Let him come to me. And then they turn and say, hey, Bartimaeus, come. The teacher calls. My point is they, they struggle with such an attitude and perspective just as we find ourselves struggling with it today. In Luke chapter 9, we see it in the whole of the chapter. Jesus has just sent out his apostles, the disciples in Luke chapter 9, and they do miracles. They do wonderful things. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000. He's preaching to the 10 or 12,000 people, 5,000 men. And at the point at which a need really arises, 
the disciples are quick to say, Jesus, let them go. We're out here in a desolate place. We can't feed them. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You feed them with what you have. And Jesus again says, we have to take up the cross. I'm going to take up my cross. Again, understanding in this day and age, the cross is not a mark of serving. It's a mark of torture. It's a mark of death, dying. And Jesus says, this is something that we need in order to walk into what we're supposed to be. And we see Jesus transfigured and showing that miraculous moment with his disciples. We see Jesus in Luke chapter 9 continuing, and he heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And still in the midst of all of that, we have this argument, this desire to say, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? James and John again, wanting to be the ones. Then something interesting happens. They come upon a person who's casting out people in Jesus' name. He's doing something good. They say, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, Luke chapter 9, verse 49. But we tried to stop him because he's not with us. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Later, just a few scriptures down, Jesus is rejected by a Samaritan village. And these disciples of love in flesh form say, hey, Jesus, they rejected you. Do you want us to call down fire and destroy the village? My point is that even those who walked with Jesus personally have a hard time understanding that he is not against, but he in all his essences, for and with. They want nothing more than to have power and authority. And speaking of power, the presence of power, I don't think, changes who we are. It it exposes who we've always been. Initially, the church, corporately speaking, historically, was fledgling. It was insecure. It was on the brink of obliteration constantly. Its leaders were largely unschooled fishermen and tax collectors that Jesus rounded up. They weren't eloquent. They lacked charisma. Fame, fortune was not theirs. The church as an entity was an outcast, even hunted. It was marked by martyrs and very different ways. Things like love, kindness, prayer, and rest or Sabbath. Gregory Boyd writes in his book, Cross Vision, how the crucifixion of Jesus makes sense of Old Testament violence. He speaks to this power dynamic, this shift. He says, prior to the fifth century, the Christians took very seriously Jesus' call to refrain from violence and to love and serve enemies. But in the early fourth century, a Roman emperor named Constantine allegedly had a vision just before a major battle. This vision convinced him that he and his army would defeat their foes. And if he fought under the banner of Christ, this was the first, but unfortunately not the last time, the name of Jesus Christ was associated with violence. Well, Constantine ended up enjoying a rather spectacular victory. And since pagans have always assumed the military victories go to the army with a stronger God, Constantine decided to pledge his allegiance to Christ. But Christ envisioned more along the lines of a triumphant pagan warrior deity than as a nonviolent, self-sacrificial, loving savior. Constantine legalized Christianity in 313. You're getting some of the history teacher now. I apologize. He legalized Christianity in 313 and began to shower the church with wealth and political power. 
In the span of less than a century, the church went from being a despised and persecuted minority to the official religion of the Roman Empire, making it illegal for everyone except Jews not to be a Christian. And since the religion of Rome had always played an important role in the running of the state, the church began to play this role. The thing is, if you're going to help run an empire, you've got to be willing to use the sword. How else can you preserve law and order and protect the empire from threatening foes? So, not surprisingly, in the 4th and 5th centuries, Christian theologians like Augustine began to look for clever ways to justify the use of violence despite Jesus and Paul's clear teachings to the contrary. Whereas the persecuted church of the first three centuries believed it was called to refrain from violence and serve the world by carrying the cross, the politically empowered church of the fourth and fifth centuries believed it was called to conquer the world for Christ, wielding the sword whenever necessary. The persecuted church became the persecuting, quote unquote, church triumphant, since it now had the political authority to persecute heretics and unbelievers. The Roman Empire was retitled the Holy Roman Empire and Christ was its triumphant emperor. Christendom was born, and while this religion has, thankfully, been dying for the last several hundred years, it has been the dominant face of Christianity for the last 15 centuries. It's not just Gregory Boyd's theological position where we see this. We see this as well as Jesus is engaging his disciples and they're wondering, hey, when are we going to throw out the Romans? When are we going to get rid of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? We have the Zealots and all these other groups that are really gathering to Jesus in hopes that he's going to overthrow and attack. We again see James and John, can I be greatest? Hey, do you need us to call down fire and burn down that village that rejected you? We see Jesus correcting Peter. When he's asking his disciples in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? And Jesus hears Peter's voice truly reflect it and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is then Jesus who talks about giving of himself and Peter tries to rebuke him high on that being right. And in that moment where Jesus encourages him. To which Jesus turns and says, no, 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 get behind me, Satan. The way of dying to self is the way into the way of Christ. It's Peter too as Jesus is making his way towards Golgotha, towards the cross. And Jesus, uh, uh, rather Peter, excuse me, takes with him a sword. And, and Peter cuts the ear off of Malchus in Luke chapter 18, or excuse me, Luke 22 and John chapter 18. It's Jesus who takes the ear. He says, enough, enough. He takes the ear and he heals the man. The next thing we hear from Peter are the three denials of Christ. Could it be that the same spirit, mind, and way that cuts off ears is the same spirit, mind, and way that denies Jesus as Lord. In John chapter 18, verses 36 and 37, Jesus' last few moments, he's being asked about, are you king by Pontius Pilate? He's being ridiculed. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Not us versus them, not fighting against. He explicitly says, not fighting against. I suggest as Pastor John Rittner of Ecclesia Church spoke in a recent message, 
that we know we have moved from Christ-centered existence and made God in our own image when our enemies are God's enemies. When all the people we hate are the people that God hates. And this brings me to systemic racism in our country. And while I know systemic racism absolutely exists, and I have alluded to such over the years, not just when George Floyd was openly murdered in broad daylight in the streets of Minneapolis, uh, I don't believe the term goes far enough. Now let's all just take a deep breath and acknowledge the tension that exists right now as I speak of these things, or, or rather this thing. Consider the American Constitution of 1787, which is one of the greatest political documents ever created by mankind, and how the construct details white land-owning men being five-fifths of a human, slaves being three-fifths of a human, and women left out altogether. To be sure, these fractions were, were not necessarily meant to be of the philosophical genre speaking to worth or value. No, they were of far more insidious design. They determined ability to own, to be taxed, and who had a voice. In 1857, Chief Justice Roger Taney said this in the Dred Scott case, that the Constitution regarded blacks as, quote, so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit, unquote. Using the Constitution as the basis of that Dred Scott decision in 1857. It wasn't until 1865 that we had the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. It wasn't until 1870 where we had the 15th Amendment granting the vote to the now freed, supposedly, slaves. Consider again that I believe that systemic racism term is too shallow of a term. Women not getting the vote until 1920 with the 19th Amendment. In 1896, it was Plessy versus Ferguson, even though there was the abolished slavery, even though the vote was apparently given, there was still a, rule, a law put in place that there was an ability to be separate but equal in Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. And if you're listening to this and think, well, Christoph, I mean, history, here and now, what about the here and now? What about those people of color who fought in World War II, came home, to the GI Bill, but were unable to partake of the GI Bill, unable to partake of the education, unable to partake of the wealth that was given to them because they were people of color, even though they fought in World War II. Consider the redlining that took place in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, many believe, that banks and institutions didn't allow for certain people of color to move into areas of suburban life. Consider the civil rights movement happening in the 1960s. Just 60 years ago, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which finally explicitly gave the right to vote to women of color. Consider not until 1967 was interracial marriage made legal in the United States 53 years ago. Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote in the court opinion, 
that, quote, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed upon by the state. Public approval of interracial marriage was at 5% in the 1950s in America. In the 19, excuse me, in the 2000s, it had climbed to 80%. 20% of people in the United States of America still believe that interracial marriage is an unhealthy and should be unlawful thing. I grew up here. I grew up in Williamsburg. And I experienced through friendships all of these things, all of the continuing to put down. As I was picked up in Kings Point by a bus and bussed across town to two of the three Section 8 housing units here in Williamsburg, I grew up with people like Robert Thomas and Gary Moore, and I played basketball at Berkeley Middle School with Robert Passante, and I saw the things that he went through. And I was involved and engaged in conversations with teachers and what they said to them and what they didn't say to me. When I was in the Colonial Williamsburg Fife and Drum Corps, we were and still are an internationally renowned organization. But we would go into a place with our friend Anthony Jackson. And he was treated differently than we were treated just because of the color of his skin. I don't need to hear stories or read them from a book. I saw them. I watched, I heard stories, I still hear stories from people today. When I was teaching in Newport News Public Schools, the, the gap was far and wide. Look, I'm not saying we need to or even could change overnight. Healthy change more often comes slowly. But to disregard our need for change is dangerous. To remember again the words of Jesus I started with in Luke chapter 5. He came for all of us sinners. All of us who are missing. All of us who are in need of change. Furthermore, please hear me. I'm not saying we're bad. I'm simply suggesting we can do better. And I'm not trying to expose how wrong you or I or we have been, but rather how long unhealthy, unfair, and unequal has been baked into the whole of where we live and breathe in this country that is indeed great and greatly flawed. I was speaking with a brother in Life Church some months ago, checking in on people after the murder of George Floyd. And he has recently moved to this country over the last decade or so from Ghana. And he, he was aware of other cultures. He, he said, Christoph, I've known people from Europe and from here and from there and from everywhere. Growing up in Ghana, we received people. We had conversations. We, we, we got to know. We honored them. He said, I didn't know racism existed until I moved to the United States of America. And he told me story after story of things that he didn't realize even were a possibility until he came to the land of opportunity. If this is unsettling to you, let it be. Not all discomfort and pain is bad. 
I remember when I felt a little pain and discomfort many years ago sitting at a desk as I was teaching in Newport News Public Schools, and I was like, man, that's, that doesn't feel too good. I kind of ignored it for a few hours, but it got so painful and so debilitating that I couldn't, and finally I mentioned it to my wife and went into the doctor the next day, and they said, well, it might be this, it might be that, and lo and behold, I had appendicitis. <laughs> if I hadn't allowed that pain to lead me to one appointment and a, an MRI and a this and a that, that appendix could have burst and caused my whole body to go toxic. Pain is not evil in and of itself. More times than not, it's a signal to the wrong. A light that when followed leads to what really needs attention. Makes me think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8 that the suffering is not to be compared with the glory to be real, revealed in God. And so if this is unsettling, if this is painful, don't use that as a marker that wants you to shut it out. That's okay. I recognize, I say these things from a middle class, white, very privileged perspective. I am aware that Bob and Dee Fehrenbach, my parents, very much raised me with a head start in relating to others, for which I am most grateful to them. But most of all, for the last 22, 23 years, as I've walked with Jesus and have made space for the scriptures to read me, I have been gratefully, continuously made unsettled by Jesus. Faith in Jesus does not make us more set or more certain in our ways. And for those of you who would say, well, well, Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Agreed, agreed, but we are not Jesus. <laughs> Far from him. Simply put, my Jesus at 39 years old, having been married 17 plus years and with three kids is very different than my Jesus when I came to know him at 17, when the only care in the world was really wondering, where am I going to go out to eat on my half day? <laughs> when we've got a half day, where are my buddies and I going to gather? My Jesus today is very different than my Jesus back then. And it's not because he's changed, it's because I have been changed by him. Faith in Jesus invites us to evolve, explore, include, allows us to engage in constant resurrection, something out of nothing, life from death. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I want to conclude with John chapter 8. Jesus drawing in the dirt. It's a familiar story, familiar moment rather. It's not a parable, it's a happening. And Jesus is really accosted by a crowd of rulers of the day, Pharisees and Sadducees more than likely. And they're dragging a woman who's caught in the midst of adultery, one who was different than them, one who was caught in sin, one who was by their eyes and by the Torah wrong. And therefore, she was to be stoned. Understand these Pharisees and Sadducees, you can paint them in an evil light, but more than reality would show us, they aren't being evil. They're trying to keep themselves safe. 
They're trying to protect their ways and their means. They see this as a responsibility. They are to root out what is wrong. They are to root out what has gone awry. And they are to stone her to death. And so they're asking Jesus, the rabbi, what do you think? And as they do this, Jesus bent down, verse 6, John chapter 8, and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin, who's perfect among you, be the first to throw a stone at her, verse 8. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, verse 9, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I've always been just blown away by that moment. That Jesus would stand up to this, this mob, and recently over a conversation I was having at a staff meeting here at Life Church, and one revelation came to me that I'd never heard before from Ryan. Uh, Ryan Linekin and I are good friends. We don't always see the eye on lots of things, but we have lots of conversations. And he pulls at me and I uh, would like to think that I pull at him. But he was sharing with us at a staff meeting the revelation that Jesus wasn't just drawing glibly on the sand in the dirt. I've always said, well, maybe he's playing tic-tac-toe. I like to think of the savior of the world just playing tic-tac-toe. Maybe he was just fiddling in the sand, but there's this revelation that he was actually doing something significant. You understand you have to recognize the moment that's really taking place. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's a most holy day in the Jewish faith. This is something that they would have been celebrating at this time and in this season. They are having just celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles, which took place in John chapter 7. When Jesus stands up and says, Behold, come, drink. If you are thirsty, I will give you refreshing. In the Day of Atonement, this Yom Kippur moment, the high priest would have been baptized 11 times, signifying a cleansing of the nation of Israel, cleansing of all the sins. Celebrations would have followed throughout the day. And in the evening, the high priest would have come out and quoted Jeremiah 17 and verse 13. And it's this, O Yahweh, the immerser, the baptizer of all Israel, all those who leave your way shall be put to shame. Those who turn aside from my ways will have their names written in the dust and be blotted out. For they have departed from Yahweh, the, father, the fountain of Bayam Hayim, the waters of life. And it's with this context we understand as Jesus has just declared to be who he is in John chapter 7. He's accosted by this woman, brought to him by the crowd, by this mob, this angry ready to throw rocks, mob, that Jesus bends down and writes in the sand. He writes in the dirt. And this commentary that Ryan was telling us about is that more than likely Jesus was signifying just as the high priest would and declaring that these are scriptures that all of these men in this mob would have heard. The oldest would have heard it more because they heard it every single year recognizing what Jesus has said, recognizing what Jesus was doing in that moment, perhaps even writing the names of those 
in the mob. Or perhaps right in the name of the woman who is brought before Jesus. Regardless of all of that, they start to click. They start to see that Jesus is not meant to be against, but he's meant to be for and with. And they are allowed to go just as she is allowed to go. The revelation gets deeper that in the next scripture, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. This is more than just illustration because the Jewish people would have had four candles lit in the temple and they would have been called the light of the world. It was by those lights that they would read their holy scriptures. They would remember the Torah. God does not need us to protect him by throwing stones at those who are different from us. When he is the only one that can truly condemn, but chooses not to. Instead, he extends mercy. He gives grace. He invites every one of us to go and sin no more. Let me leave you with this benediction. May we enjoy, celebrate, and take full advantage of our great country while making room for King Jesus to supersede such citizenship with our serving all others as he himself does and invites us to as well. May we not confuse all the things. May we always see our own names in the dirt of these earthy issues and see the Christ come to and invite and send everyone. And may we remember that only with Jesus will we get better.